I'm Rob Hopkins, with a cold, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. In their book, Imagination First, Eric Liu and Scott Nope Brandon wrote, It is pretty clear what makes young humans allergic to imagination, school. In my search for schools or approaches to education that truly place imagination at their heart and which avoid this kind of strategy, I was fascinated to hear about Den Grüne Free School or the Green Free School in Copenhagen. They're a school that values imagination, transition and sustainability above everything else and have developed something very powerful. To find out more, I spoke to Danish-American Karen McLean, one of the people who started the school. She had originally trained to be a university teacher but never actually taught ending up initially working as a translator, but then more recently as one of the people running the school. I started by asking Karen how the school initially came about. So I sent my daughters to Waldorf School because I was interested in creativity. I knew that um, my partner and I could provide a stimulating intellectual environment for our kids, but I wasn't so sure about the creative part. But as I got familiar with Waldorf, which is still a kind of schooling that I really, really like, I became more interested in sustainability and in transition. And it became clear to me that the local Waldorf school was not as interested as I was in sustainability and transition. And I became more and more curious to know what a school would look like that actually prepared children to participate in creating transition And who would also want to, who would not see it as a drudgery the way many adults do. Oh, we have to do things differently, not so awful, but would be thrilled and excited and feel themselves as activists where being part of transition gave meaning to their lives. That's a tall order, but that's what started me on the path. And I had a a friend whose daughters also went to Waldorf School and we decided that we would start a school for our daughters to teach them the things, the skills and the knowledge and the way of relating to knowledge that would start from the very beginning involving them in transition. So that's how that started. And is it is it a school which is funded by the state or funded by, by the parents? So those are two questions. The first one is that we started our actual preparations for the school in 2013 We opened our doors in 2014 with 43 children. And if you came to our school today, you would find that we're on an industrial lot with a hodgepodge of different kinds of buildings. There are 150 children, ages 5 to 14. We have a lot of outdoor space at the school, which is basically asphalt with garden bits on top. And then we have some newly built uh, facilities, which are sustainably built and quite beautiful. And then we have some restored bits and bobs that are sustainably restored and look very homey. You don't think when you walk into our school that it's a school necessarily. So there are no tables and chairs in rows. There are no blackboards necessarily. There are a lot of various kinds of spaces um, that are homey and comfortable to be in. And it doesn't look like an institution. It doesn't look like a place where children would be necessarily learning things. And is it is it a school which is funded by the state or funded by, by the parents? So it's a mix. The Danish model, the Danish education system consists of a, a, a public schools that are free for everybody. And then there's a private option, which is called the free schools, 
which is why we're called the Green Free School. And the free schools, if they satisfy certain requirements from the government, receive approximately 70% of their funding through grants from the government. And I don't really know of any schools in Denmark that are able to run outside that model. It would be prohibitively expensive to do that. So do you have to teach the national curriculum? Are there, are there things expected of you by the government? There are. The government has articulated uh, learning goals uh, at each uh, grade level, um, all the way up to the ninth grade, and they are guidelines, and we, um, we follow them, but there's a lot of leeway for us to follow them. We do not have to administer national tests. We are free to choose any method that we wish. We are um, assessed every year by a certified, uh, I don't know what you would call her, consultant, um, government certified, who certifies that we teach in Danish and we teach Danish values and that the um, education that we offer, the learning activities that we offer, are commensurate with the kinds of activities that are offered in Danish public schools at the same grade level. So she checks our English and Danish and math instruction and sees that it matches what children at the same age are taught in a public school. We have grades K through nine, which are basically five, six-year-olds through 14-year-olds. And that's where primary school ends in Denmark after the ninth grade. And um, one of the things that, that Steiner schools are very uh, famous for, I guess, is they're quite... Um, is there quite strong approach to particularly digital technologies and to say that children should have no television and smartphones and iPads and social media and stuff. What What's the position that you take in your school on, on, on those technologies? Well, um, we view technologies as tools on a par with a hammer or a pen, and we try to teach the children to use them for their own purposes. And in order to teach them to be not consumers and users, but producers, we aim to teach them code, to teach them how these things work. So in a sense, we have some of the wariness that Waldorf has, but our approach is to teach children how these things work and to have them use them as tools in certain settings. Now, we're not a very rich school, so we don't have very many computers, but we do have a computer lab and the kids go there to research or to write their blog logs if they're the older children. And, but we do have a no telephones in school policy, which I don't think is very controversial. So you get to school, you put away your telephone and you can't use it unless the teacher gives you permission or asks you to use it as part of the instruction. What's your sense of what you do in the school around imagination how how specifically do you feel like you nurture and cultivate the imagination of your students in a way that in a more conventional setting might not necessarily be the case well i think that formally speaking we do some interesting things first of all we have we work in projects so we don't have regular instruction in maths or Danish or whatever. Um, we work in interdisciplinary projects that are quite open-ended. And so the learning products that the children create in these projects 
can just as well be a work of art or a craft as a text or a, what do you call it, a presentation. So that we're very open about the products of learning. And being open about the product of learning, the sign of learning, the outward sign of learning, um, and not having um, a right answer is incredibly important in my mind to fostering creativity and to letting the imagination come into play. So that's one formal way in which we foster the imagination. Um, Content-wise, we have a lot of stories. We have a lot of arts. Again, arts are um, children's creations that don't have a correct answer. So the process isn't closed down by the child having to either come up with a correct answer or guess what the adults are looking for. So does that make sense to you, both in terms of the the formal, the framework, but also the content? Yeah, that's beautiful. So so that that's like that's like the the new approach they've brought in in Finland around not teaching subject based, but teaching based on projects. So they might decide, I want to figure out how the Big Bang happened, and then they bring in whatever, and the teachers support them to learn whatever it is they need in order to understand that thing. Is that what you mean? Yes. Exactly. And so one of the things that we do, which is different from the Finnish approach, is that we we try to start our projects with a with an experience, a sensory experience, hearing a play or walking into the ocean with our bare feet to feel the sand or going into the forest to listen to the birds. We try to, to start with a sensory experience because um, starting in the senses anchors us in a way in ourselves and our own interpretation. And then the projects, there's a project model, goes in, in different directions and also, for example, goes in the direction of standardized knowledge, right? But the entire process of going through our, our project model um, keeps putting the children through the paces of being knowledge producers. And when you're a knowledge producer for yourself, again, you're not coming up with a fixed answer. So we might say we're going to look at the universe and then some of the children might peel off after a couple of weeks of studying the universe and decide we want to do the Big Bang. But most likely we would not have a project named the Big Bang. That would grow out of the children's interest. You know, we, we talked at the beginning about how, how it's a school that promotes transition or tries to produce young people con- who can contribute and are as excited about transition as possible. Le- learning through that model of here's a problem, there's not only one solution to it, there are many, many solutions to it. Why, wh- how do you see the overlap there between, the, be- between that way of thinking and contributing to, 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 what, to, to the challenges the world faces today? Yeah, I'd almost say we step up, take a step back from that. We say, here's something that we're experiencing. What are you curious about here? How does this particular natural phenomenon or social phenomenon, how does it tick? What is it? What questions does it um, bring to the surface for you? And, and out of experiencing that, and this is very abstract, but, you know, you actually do it with the kids. Out of that experience grows an awareness of 
the problems that there might be that we might want to address. And it can be something as simple as taking a walk down the beach. We have a project about uh, the ocean and the children themselves discover how much bloody trash is accumulating on the beach. And then the ocean project actually, for some of the children, goes in the direction of pollution, plastic pollution in the oceans. They discover the problem. They're not presented with the problem. That is not the job that we have. And that prepares them for being in any kind of life situation and experiencing it and noticing it and then noticing what can be tweaked. When involved in and doing transition, there is always that balance between, hey, we could do this and we could do that and let's go and do it and let's learn how to do it and kind of digesting and understanding and internalizing the scale of the challenge and the grief that accompanies that do you sort of design in space for that sort of digestion as as well i think that part of our approach is to not get into the issues that are big enough that the grief takes up a lot of space to tell you the truth we're very invested in being super local with the children and working very locally and spending more energy actually creating an attachment to their local built and grown environment and discovering the smaller problems there than actually tackling, talking about the larger problems. For the older children, these problems obviously come up. They're on social media. They're aware of them. But for, you know, the kids all the way up to the fifth, sixth grade, we work with problems that are manageable at kids level. For you, what would you say are the vital elements of space in which imagination can flourish? If you're, if you want to create and hold a space in which people can be really, really, kids can be really wildly imaginative, what are the ingredients of, of that space? Well, I think one important ingredient is nature. Being in all different kinds of nature as much as possible, being outdoors as much as possible. And part of what that is, is to have uh, body freedom, to be able to do a lot of things in a lot of different kinds of landscapes. I also think that self-determination is a really important imagination, that there's something about just having to diddle around and make up your own mind, which is really a really important ingredient in imagination. We want to sit kids down with the markers and the piece of paper and say, we'll use your imagination. But in fact, the interesting moment in imagination comes before the markers and the paper. It's in that empty space, which can be beautiful or not so beautiful, but it's empty of your creation. And that yet you can only take advantage of that space if you have the power to make your own decisions about what you want to do in that space. And you, you mentioned that you're on a, a, a unit in an industrial estate. How, how easy is it to create that, that, that um, relationship with nature in that kind of a setting? Well, we have a lot of outdoor schooling. We have a school garden, which is about you know, 10, 15 minutes walk away down at the beach. Each of the groups goes on a field trip once a week. And many, many of those field trips are to the forest or to the beach Sometimes they can walk there. Sometimes they have to take the bus or the train or both. Some of those field trips are also to museums and and businesses or whatnot. But a lot of our field trips go directly to nature. 
and we either have activities and instruction about the nature we're in or about something else that just happens to take place in the nature. And one of the questions that I've asked, or the question that I've asked everybody that I've interviewed as part of this book has been, if you had been elected as, does Denmark have a prime minister or a president? Prime minister. Prime minister. Prime minister. So if you had been elected as the prime minister of Denmark and you had run on a platform of make Denmark imaginative again and you had recognised that at this point in history with the climate emergency that we have that what was most important was not to focus on innovation and economic innovation was but was to focus on imagination and having a national having a uh, a focused attempt at boosting imagination across education and business and public life and politics and everything so in the same way that you might have been elected in the past to say we're going to turn this economy around or we're going to put this country on a war footing or whatever you say we're going to make this place as imaginative as it can possibly be what might you do in your first year in office totally off the top of my head I would create in that first year five or six national holidays and each of those national holidays would have a theme that functioned as a framework for people to go and explore or do things together or maybe alone and use their imaginations. And I might even just make it that free. I would say we're going to have a national holiday to boost our imagination. And the framework of the first one is um, do something with your neighbors. So you give people little kind of challenges each time. Yeah, I would say give them a frame because if it's too loose, then we all get kind of overwhelmed. But do something with your neighbors is like, oh, I have to use my imagination to figure out something that we could do in our neighborhood or in our apartment building together. And of course, because it's me, I would say that the overarching the overarching theme of those national holidays could be something like uh, sustainability or transition or green. And then I would narrow down each national holiday and say, give people a framework to work within. What are, When you look around the world or in Denmark, you know, for, for your... Uh, for example, for other examples of schools that are really nurturing imagination in very creative ways, who who are your heroes? What are the what are the places that other projects that you look to? Nurturing imagination. Well, I do think that the Waldorf schools nurture imagination really, really well. Um, there's a little school in Romania, the Green School, that I admire for their work with imagination. The, the places that inspire me are mostly the early childhood, the forest kindergartens. Yeah, that's what I say. Forest kindergartens and Waldorf schools and then the green school in Romania. And in, in your uh, experience or what you've seen or with the kids who come through the door at your school, where would you say that, that conventional schooling goes wrong in terms of its handling of the imagination of the people uh, of, of the kids it's charged with educating? Well, I think some of it is the dulling of the senses, that the imagination needs the whole body and all the senses. Sitting still and having to pay attention and only use some of your senses, 
Um, it gets kids out of the habit of feeling the world and themselves. And I think that that's a really, really important component in restoring imagination when the kids come to us, that they return to being able to feel themselves and feel the world around them, experience the world around them. And then I would have to say the other thing is the fallacy of the correct answer. It's not that the world doesn't have facts and that there aren't, you know, factual answers to some things, but to inculcate children in the idea that the, the entire work of children and henceforth the work of grown-ups is to find the correct answers to things. It, it's a great disservice to, to the faculty of imagination. I, I always, when I do talks now about this stuff, I always start by getting people into pairs and then I show them an object, show the group an object, a paper cup or something. And so you've got two minutes to come up with as many different uses for this as possible go you know and then the whole room fills up with this sort of bright eyes and laughter uh -huh. and connection and uh -huh. you know and and it always feels to me like that's that's what it feels like when you kind of invoke imagination into the space i, I wonder in, in in terms of teaching and, in, and working with young people what for you does it feel like when when imagination is is in the room what what does that feel like how would you describe that how how do, how do you know when it's there well, I have to say, it takes so many different forms. I mean, some children, when their imagination goes racing, they just sort of close down and they just focus in on, you know, the thing they're drawing or the piece of soapstone that they're carving. And then other children, it's definitely an interactive thing. And there's like this buzz, you know, and their eyes are bright and their cheeks get kind of red and they're buzzing with each other. And actually, for some people... Someone like me, you probably wouldn't be able to tell that I was creative because I might be off in a corner kind of doodling or knitting or going for a walk. And so the very many creative thoughts that are kind of clicking together inside my head wouldn't be visible from outside. <laughs>